130 Hercules is past the point of no return. The point at which there's not enough fuel to safely turn back, no matter what the weather is on the ice. It's loud back here, the moan of four massive props, relentless. I'm dressed like all of us who've been approved to make this journey in the same regulation gear as required by the National Science Foundation for all flights and means of conveyance on the ice. Thick, goose-down parka, known by one and all as Big Red, heavy waterproof overalls, inflatable bunny boots, gloves, long underwear, cap. I am talking layers. Runway is frozen sea ice, 10 feet thick. The airport shuttle, Ivan the Terrorbus. A road warrior-looking behemoth that takes us slowly towards our destination. We're driving Ivan, 40 feet long, 67,000 pounds, 23 years old, made out of some good Canadian steel. Sometimes the heat actually works. This year it does. It is no short hop to Antarctica, and no easy thing to see it the way it should be seen. The last un up place on Earth. There we are. Try to get plenty of rest and enjoy the Antarctic. McMurdo Station, the largest U.S. base on the continent. The hub supply and support center for everything we do here in Antarctica. The pursuit of pure science. It ain't pretty. It looks like a mining camp. But look closely and you notice things, like the total absence of litter. Not a single cigarette butt. It's one of the most carefully regulated communities on the planet. And it is a community, a tightly knit, highly organized, very odd subculture of just under a thousand people in summer and 150 in winter, all working towards the same thing, 
in this most remote, barren, yet stunningly beautiful continent. Work is seasonal in McMurdo, and it's the type of place that demands a very special kind of individual. Everyone is interdependent and comes to realize that very quickly. The scientists, known in local parlance as beakers, depend absolutely on a support community of specialists like the carps or carpenters, heavy equipment operators, the fuelies, riggers, pilots, wasties, cooks. Like I said, it takes a special breed of hard ass to not just make it down here, but like it. You got to be tough. Right now, I love being in McMurdo um, because it's like being at a spa for scientists. Doug McHale is one of the world's preeminent glaciologists who's been coming to Antarctica since the 70s. The coffee house, one of three watering holes on station. It's not much to look at, but offers a welcome respite from the cold. One thing about this continent that's special is the vertical hierarchy. Everybody respects up and down equally. The janitor really does have a sense that their action is right at the front line. That doesn't happen as much elsewhere in the world of science, tangibly seeing a contribution. What brought you here? It's cold out here. It's part of some kind of personal honor. People who come as a scientist might think of their science as driving them more than thinking of coming to a place that is definitely different than anywhere else in the world. Despite its seemingly endless whiteness, what you see is a desert, technically. The highest and driest on the planet. A frozen desert, holding 61% of the entire world's fresh water. It looks like nothing lives. You won't see a single plant, a single leaf, and certainly not a puppy. Even the sun this time of year never sets. It moves in lazy circles around the sky. But shit is indeed moving. Beneath your feet, all around you, just very slowly. An ice shelf is a kind of glacier that flows off the land, but begins to float in the ocean. It's fresh water. It's, it's fresh water ice, and the ice itself varies from the snow like today, right. and down at the bottom, ice that might have fallen in snow 35,000 years ago. It's the part of the Antarctic ice sheet we call the buttress, because it fringes the entire continent. It might take 50,000 years for the ice at South Pole to get into the Ross Sea and bust off as an iceberg, no. but it would take only 20,000 years or even 10,000 years if that ice shelf wasn't there. This is the biggest pile of free ice in the solar system. McMurdo is at the tip of Ross Island, surrounded by miles of frozen sea. There are a lot of different types of ice down here. Glaciology started about 50 years ago. Our entire science is driven by the fact that we're still trying to figure out what Antarctica is doing in terms of sea level, how the ice sheet is expanding or contracting, how it's flowing, uh, whether it melts in some places, how it busts off icebergs that float away in the ocean. And we're trying to come up with some kind of a solid, reliable statement about what cities like San Francisco and New York and Shanghai have to plan for. Antarctica, for all too obvious reasons, remained free of any sustained human contact until the mid-20th century, when the U.S. Navy launched Operation Deep Freeze, 
an enormous logistical enterprise that established the first permanent base here at McMurdo in 1955. Deep down in the ice, caves were cut, and here the supplies were packed away in a natural fridge. Frozen meat, perfectly preserved, but where's that axe? Let's have a bit of 15-year-old ham. Since the National Science Foundation took over from the Navy, things have gotten a lot less Wild West around here. It feels like dorm life at college. Bathrooms are communal, everybody rotates housekeeping duties, and everybody shuffles off at designated hours to the galley, where the cooks do the very best they can, given the infrequent delivery of what are called belonging tones around here, freshies, or anything not frozen, canned, or prepared little connectivity I have with the outside world I owe entirely to you. You've been uh, helping me enormously. Joni works IT and has been coming here for nine seasons. But it's coming, right? I mean, sooner or later they're going to put a satellite up there and everyone out here is going to Maybe. Be. I mean, we're a long way away from having cell service down here and everybody having internet like at Maybe home. It's really the last place on earth for cell service. <laughs> Christy is a heavy equipment operator coming for 19 seasons. I actually started off at two seasons in the galley and then I ended up getting trained on the equipment. So you learned an entirely new profession so that you could stay here. Yeah. And Jules, another heavy equipment operator who could most likely kick your ass, eat your lunch, then kick your ass again, has been coming for an astonishing 38 seasons. So what were you doing before? See, my mom worked for the company and she wanted me to come. Because I didn't want to come. She was trying to get rid of you or what? Yeah. She wanted to come. When you first started coming, how many women were here? What was the ratio? My first two years were at South Pole. There were probably 90 civilians. I was the only female at South Pole. <clears throat> and there were probably 12 total in McMurdo and probably 1,100 men. Was the Navy still running the place yes. back then? Yes, and I had a lot of respect because the United States Navy was the one that integrated this place. And originally, down here, it was kind of this thing like, what, shall we let women be here? Right. And then we had an admiral come down, and he's like, dude, where's all the women? And, oh, we don't, here's, we don't have facilities for them. And he said, well, you right, goddamn right. better get facilities for them. When I first came down here, the company was all about, hey, this is special, there's not very many civilians. You know, it's wild and free, and it's a great place to be. Just looking out the window, having seen what you see on a regular basis and experienced what you've experienced, is that an alienating experience? I really appreciate how simple life is and how little you need to get by. Like, you just pack a couple duffel bags and you come down. But then I find when I go home, sometimes I get caught up in the, I want, I need, I want, I need. And that's the part that kind of bums me out. And that's one of the things I like about it, is that there's no rat race, there's no errands. It's a pretty egalitarian society here. NSF sitting down at tables with us, and the janitors and the fuelies are as important as the people who run the station. Nothing gets done without power, and there's no power without fuel. There's no fuel without roads. There's no roads without heavy equipment. So it just kind of goes from there, and I kind of appreciate what everybody else's role is. Hey, this is a place where things are more powerful that don't involve money. You make lifelong friendships. The beauty of this place is astounding. It's such a unique experience. There's something magical about being here, a shared experience. You know, a lot of people get really hooked on this place, and it's inexpressible, I guess, as to what it is. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In Antarctica, the sun sets once a year and rises once a year. Some twilight in late March, then five months of darkness and extreme cold and weather conditions lasting until September. Six months of daylight, the Antarctic summer season, where we are now, constant sunlight, reflecting off the ice, and it can and does fry the brain. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Romano. This is the Hot Cup of Joe radio show. We're going to spin some tunes here. We have a special guest in here today. Here to visit us at the McMurdo Station, Antarctica, Mr. Tony Bourdain. suitable runways beyond McMurdo. For short hops, the main mode of transportation is helicopter. Ryan Skorecki gets a lot of flying time shuttling scientists to and from remote field camps. So that's Mount Lister. That's probably 60 or 70 miles away, and that's over 14,000 feet high. Looks close. Yeah. Look at that massive snow bridge right there, huh? Building size blocks. How deep are those crusts? They'd swallow buildings. It's very impressive. So that's what you don't want to hit with your snowmobile. Right. People climb around in those things. The mountaineers don't have drills to practice extricating somebody. There is a steep learning curve to flying down here, skillfully handling gale force winds 
reduced control at high altitudes, and the unpredictability of extreme turbulence around mountains and active volcanoes. Slowly but surely, climbing, and it's minus 20 outside. Erebus, and that's Mount Terror. This is Mount Erebus, the southernmost active volcano on Earth. Antarctica was a great mystery for most of human history. Only a theory, a great white space at the bottom of the world. We're just passing 8,500, so we'll go another 4,000. You're gonna see the main crater in just a second. The conditions endured by the first British Antarctic explorers like Scott and Shackleton and Norwegian Amundsen and the lengths of time they endured them are, well, horrifying to imagine. They made their journeys in wooden ships, man-hauling equipment across glaciers, ice flows, mountains, and frozen seas, surviving on penguin meat when rations ran out. You might start to smell some sulfur. Yeah, I smell that sulfur. What's our altitude now? 13-2. Cool. About 22 miles from McMurdo is Cape Royds, where a penguin colony of about 2,000 breeding pairs live. Marine ecologist Dr. David Ainley has been studying this colony for 20 years. So you're tagging the young ones? Right. Do you follow them through their entire life? I mean, essentially... Yeah, this year we've got a bunch of individuals that are 20 years old. Why penguins? What brought you to penguins initially? Well, this kind of penguin just does everything with no secrets. Right. If you, you know, ask the right question and you're creative enough, then they're going to give you the answer without a lot of guessing. What really interests me is the relationship of these penguins to the ocean mm. and how they fit into the food web. During the 90s, small colonies like Cape Royds were increasing much faster than the large colonies, mm -hmm. where the competition for food was so intense. In the last 10 years, colonies started increasing again. We think it's because of the fishery for Antarctic toothfish. The toothfish and the penguins eat the same prey, so now there's more fish available for adults to capture and feed to their chicks. Oh, so there's less competition, therefore uh, more of the same prey available. Yeah. I don't see a lot of them going in the water, but they're looking for some indicator that there's fish down there. They're afraid to cross the ice crack because leopard seals might be in them. They're very hesitant, so then finally they make the plunge. I mean, they're very agile. They don't look at them. At first blush, they appear clumsy, but watching them, they got a lot of moves. Yeah, they're very, very agile. Increasingly, people want to see penguins. They are much loved by, you know, children everywhere. A lot of people would like to come to Antarctica as tourists and look at penguins up close in their natural environment without impacting them in a negative way. Is that a good thing? And the thing about Antarctica is that most scientists just kind of like, you know, keep their nose to the grindstone. And so the only advocacy for Antarctica has to come from the public. It's very valuable to have these tours because people have a, an ownership. Of, mm -hmm. You know, they've been there and they see it. What keeps you coming back? I mean, other than the work. 
I wanted to come to Antarctica because I'd heard it was a very severe place and, you know, nature was the king, daunting. <laughs> Having a chance to be humbled by something greater than you is, I think, an important part of being here. Antarctica is covered with ice. 60 miles out of town are the dry valleys. The 1% of the continent devoid of snowfall. Scott called it the Valley of Death, and it feels like Mars. In fact, they used to test out equipment for Martian exploration here. Desolate, but beautiful. The Canada Glacier, a wall of ice, right there where it seems to have stopped short, pulled back, scraping up a beach on a frozen lake. Here is one of the NSF's oldest and more legendary field camps, Lake Hoare. Everything comes in by helicopter. The base here supports a small team of scientists and staff working on a variety of long-term projects. It is, however, most legendary for this woman, Ray Spain, the camp's manager, who's been coming to Lake Hoare for 19 seasons. Said to be the best cook on the continent, this in an environment where so-called freshies, the rare fresh vegetable, is spoken of in hushed tones of near fetishistic appreciation. Staying over at Lake Hoare is a rare privilege, enjoyed by few like Dr. Michael Gusev, a hydroecologist, and Dr. Byron Adams, a biologist. So what are you looking at here? Everything that lives here lives in the soil. We study the soil organisms, mostly the animals that live here, but also the microbes that those animals feed off of. All right. This is just a marker to tell us to stay on this trail. Okay. These soils are so sensitive that if we walk off the trail or whatever, we can completely jack up the soil organisms that live below there. Oh, like that guy? Yeah, like that dude. He's totally, oh, he's going to get wiped out. When scientists came and first started studying, they thought that these soils were sterile, but we dispelled that myth. When the glaciers melt and the streams flow, that's where you find life. So why does this area look like this? Where's the ice? How come the ground is sort of soft and spongy? The polar plateau, where the most of the ice accumulates, starts to spread out towards the edges of the continent. But the transantarctic mountains form a barrier. So the ice sheet hits the mountains and it can't get through. The other thing is that there are these really gnarly winds that come off of the drop down on the plateau and then rush towards the edges of the continent, gushing through these valleys. So it's a fluky microclimate here. We call it the banana belt of Antarctica. <laughs> it's, it's warm, we're coastal. Life at Lake Hoare, considering the limitations and the difficulties, is freaking luxurious by continental standards. Out here, by the way, as everywhere on the continent, every bit of waste is separated and collected. One pees in a bottle and pours it in the barrel, where it is eventually collected and shipped back to America.
Life here most definitely has its advantages. Ray and her staff seem always to be making something delicious. Homemade bread, scones, muffins appear throughout the day. Tonight, it's barbecue pork tenderloin. Oh, that looks good. Pork tenderloin? Damn. Grilled mahi sticks and shrimp marinated in chili sauce. Homemade sourdough bread. A roasted beet salad. Gosh, look at the salad. It's so purple and it has avocado in it. What cannot be fresh is nonetheless delicious. Edamame salad with dried cranberries and carrots. Roasted vegetables. One might find oneself enjoying a cocktail or two. This is an amazing spread. I know. Mm -hmm. What are you guys doing here? What are you looking for? I'm collecting water samples in the streams and also collecting samples of the algae. So we're looking at these cyanobacteria mats which create this rainbow shag rug in the streams, which is uh -huh. super cool. Well, you know, the beginning of the 20th century when scientists and explorers were national heroes, there was a hunger for knowledge and discovery. Not a good climate for facts, though, we live in today. No. We may interpret our facts differently, but we don't get to make up our own facts. I mean, there are plenty right? of people out there who believe the Flintstones is pretty much an accurate portrayal of history. Don't laugh, Mike. That's good. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> like, they're funding our science in large part. You want that connection between the public and the scientists, and that's something we don't do a great job of back home. I get this criticism all the time, though, that you scientists need to do a better job of presenting your research. I get that, but I'm a professor at a university. I present knowledge and information. Mm -hmm. They attend the classes. They learn all this awesome stuff. They're thoughtful. They enter the world. They make the world better. But they don't do it in a five-minute soundbite. But we live in a terrible new reality where you better have a five-minute soundbite or, or they're coming for you. Right, right. we got to learn how to teach evolutionary biology 140 characters. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so you guys just need better press. Yeah, yeah. You ran gathering data that will potentially save the world from flesh-eating, anal-seeking algae. <laughs>
quite wonderful. Wouldn't that be great, though? Yeah? If everyone played as nice as we do with other nations, working together to do science, collaborating. Yeah. Dream on, buddy. <laughs> the meal is followed by a precarious trip across the frozen lake to the beach. Because what's Antarctica about if it ain't about a beach party? I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Another C-130. The big, gorgeous workhorse of the Antarctic gets you to the ass end of the planet, where it's north every direction you go, bottom of the world. So I like to say this is the biggest airplane. You can do little airplane things with sea, ski planes or float planes. And we're trying to do those same types of missions with a C-130, which is unusual. Everything that built the station actually came on one of these C-130s. They had to build it using trusses and pieces that could fit in the confines of an LC-130. It's a fun job, and supporting the scientists is fantastic. In just a few hours, we cross the Ross Ice Shelf, fly up the Beardmore Glacier into the heart of Antarctica, the Polar Plateau. How many miles from Roberto to the pole around? 735 miles. Did Scott walk that? What was going through his mind? Yeah. They'd love to suffer. The first explorers who got here or came close raced across the continent, striving to be the first. Amundsen made it before anyone in 1911 beating Scott by only 34 days. Amundsen wisely used huskies to pull his sleds across the ice. Scott didn't, and his team never made it back alive. The South Pole. What you might not know or be prepared for is the South Pole is high, like 9,000 feet above sea level. And it's cold. Real cold. But you knew that. You feel the altitude. Today, the base at South Pole has the feel of a space station, a warm, comfortable bubble in the middle of, well, the Great Void. It can be incredibly harsh out there with winds reaching as high as 50 knots and temperatures regularly dropping below negative 50 degrees Fahrenheit. 
About 200 scientists and staff work here during the summer season. Some of the few freshies that left. Oh, really? Chef Brian Denham is responsible for keeping them all fed and happy. He's been coming here for about five seasons, wintering over for three of those. Again, one makes a lot with a little. What do you think the likely common thread is between all of the people who choose to come to this place? Everybody's got a spirit of adventure here. It's really cool because you think, oh, I've done some pretty cool things, and then you talk to someone else, you think, oh, I've done nothing. Dr. Stuart <laughs> Jeffries is an astronomer and solar specialist. First year's for the adventure, the second year's for the money, the third year's because you don't fit in nowhere else. Yeah. <laughs> can't function anywhere That's else. That's right. Siri Grossman runs equipment and supply. I really love it here. I feel like I live on a space station. I keep coming back. It's damn good. I like after a hard day dragging blocks of ice. Mm -hmm. It's exactly what you need. People that work outside, I mean, they'll burn five, six thousand calories a day. Generally speaking, people can work between one and four hours at a time before they need to come in and get warm. Yeah. We eat pretty good down here considering where we are. So we got a five-week menu cycle. Right. Every Friday for four weeks is New York strips. On the fifth week, we do filet mignon and crab legs. We don't really do fancy food. We just do basic food well. Filet mignon with crab legs? Yeah, that's every five weeks. Right. How do you deal with vegetarians with no freshies? We got lots of frozen and canned stuff. <laughs> it's like justice. Yeah. <laughs> Who determines the playlist? It's usually whoever shifts. Is, is going on at the time. I think there was a complaint one day about yeah. the music. Then they picked this really awful song the next day and they played it over and over and over. It was an afternoon delight. We just put it on yeah. loop. We started listening to German talk radio too. German talk radio. Yeah. So what do you do here? We're looking at the inside of the sun, doing a seismic probing. No one's looking for frozen Nazi cyborgs? I think they get those in the top few layers. <laughs> They're around here somewhere. I'm yeah. sure of it. <laughs> Beneath the station is a subterranean world. Two thousand feet of tunnels, thirty feet down. Carved into the walls, impromptu shrines, depicting personal messages, remembrances left behind by long gone workers. A frozen, constantly moving and shifting network of passageways. The walls come in, the ceiling comes down, the floor comes up. Requiring constant maintenance. What's supporting this roof? The compaction of the snow. Scott Smith runs the crews, keeping these tunnels clear and pipes flowing. We're in the process now of taking the chainsaw depth off the walls and the ceiling to make them into a more usable entry. A lot of work. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Feet of engineering here. The lowest recorded temperature at the South Pole is 117 degrees below zero. We're roughly minus 59 right now. Minus 59? It's Fahrenheit. Wow. Well, it feels like minus 20. Ish. <laughs> I can tell you it scorches the lungs and creeps through your heavy outerwear. 200 feet below the ground. We've melted a giant, enormous lake down to about 2 million gallons. It takes about 20 inches of snow wow. to make an inch of water. Pump the fresh water supply up to the station. It gets treated at the power plant. Yeah. The rest comes back down, recirculated. It's hot, which then melts more ice. Right. This giant hole in the ground contains our sewage for future removal. Water on top, sewer on the bottom.
what do they do down here? Some pretty trippy shit, as it turns out. This is the bicep in the dark sector lab and the South Pole Telescope, 10 meters across, mapping thousands of degrees of sky. Today, they're installing the most advanced camera of its kind. It's the third generation South Pole Telescope camera, 16,000 pixels. It weighs about 2,500 pounds. In a couple days, we're going to pull it up into the telescope and try and see if we can hit the sky with it. Very cool. It's like a Bond villain stuff, you know. Yeah, no, Astrophysicists like Dan Marone will be looking through those telescopes that get this, Sagittarius A, the freaking black hole at the center of the Milky Way. We think we know what black holes look like, but no one's ever actually looked at one. And if you can build a telescope the size of the entire Earth, you can actually see with enough resolution to watch things swirling around, disappearing into the black hole. We're basically taking every submillimeter telescope in the world to synthesize one telescope that's 11,000 kilometers across, basically the size of the entire Earth. Really? So that we can take a picture of the black hole at the center of our galaxy. Wow. South Pole, uh, particularly useful because... There's no other site like this. The atmosphere is extremely stable. It's extremely clear. There's no water in it. Water absorbs the microwaves we're looking at. So you can just map the sky day and night for six months a year without stopping. And it gives you the best maps we can make short of going to space. I grew up in the Kennedy era where the space program was everything. The first man on the moon, the space race, the whole nation, we can't wait till we can get to Mars. Nobody uses a f now. I mean, have you seen that change? Because I, I felt it change. Yeah, it's true that there is an increased skepticism of objective reality these days. But this science stands on thousands of years of human accrued understanding. Who's interested? Like, who's most likely to benefit? There's no immediate answer to that question. But you're asking basic questions about the fundamental nature of matter, time, space. Surely it was people asking those kinds of questions that led directly to technologies that we take for granted now. That's right. I mean, there's no question. We have to solve hard problems to do these things. And when we solve them, they have other applications. I've always thought of this basic research, trying to understand the universe, as one of the most hopeful things that humans do. We just want to know. What's at the other end of that? Wouldn't you kind of like to know? At a time when science is held in open contempt, when painfully acquired data is actually being deleted from computers if it conflicts with preconceived policies, these guys are looking at some deep stuff. Where do we come from? How does it all work? How far can we go? What are we as sentient humans capable of? And what? What's on the other side? Said to the world.
As the Antarctic summer season comes to an end, the U.S. Coast Guard icebreaker Polar Star cuts through 70 miles of frozen sea to make a channel for the resupply ship Ocean Giant. She delivers vital food and equipment to McMurdo before the winter closes in. Just over 500 containers coming down, and it'll be 500 going back. Well, it's just like a giant human. Food comes in, shit goes out. Yep, <laughs> yeah. The human waste does go out. Yeah, everything, yeah. right? The retro, the waste, old equipment. Ah. Dale Rivers, fleet ops foreman, makes sure the supplies are moving on and off safely. The whole town mobilizes, working alongside hundreds of Navy fleet ops to unload and reload. Oh, yeah, that'll do. Thank you. You're welcome. Awesome. Russell Freeman is the executive chef at McBurdo. It's our year supply of food. Year supply? Yep. How old is this? <laughs> uh, ideally, you would want it from last year. We do a lot with a little. Yeah. Soon after this vessel leaves, the population starts just going downhill. Right. Yeah, we're going to warm places, green grass, all the things you don't see down here. Children, puppies, and exactly. salads. Yeah, and then we just scatter to the winds and regroup in August. Yeah. Oh, yeah? At the end of the Antarctic summer season, there is, however, a vibrant party culture. And where people work hard, they deserve to party hard. Responsibly, of course. We got it! We got it! But they do go hard here. And whether it's the fuelies or the wasties or the riggers who throw the best parties, and there is much competition in this department, one can, it turns out, have a very good time at the end of the world. Let's get another album queued up here. It's liking this song. All right, this is the world's worst and most technically inept DJ signing off. Thanks for listening. Antarctica never gets old. There is a curiosity in everyone who comes here. It's a continent of travelers, of seekers, united in the continuation of exploration, learning, the search for greater understanding, the pursuit of pure knowledge.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.